penalty at the end of the play. After 31 long games, the streak ends. Burrow on a play fake. Deep middle. Got it. Complete to Derek Dillon. Dillon on the run. Can they get him? Unbelievable. 71 yards later. Cole Tracy to win it for LSU. Kick on the way, and it is dead center. And the 13-game home winning streak for the Tigers has ended. Last play of the game. Wilson in zone. Flag thrown with no time left for the win. Wilson will throw. In zone. Touchdown. C.J. Conrad. For Texas A&M down seven. Mon trouble with the snap. Almost went down to a knee. And that ball is picked off. It's Delpit that'll put it away with his sixth interception of the season. LSU. See, but let's take a look. It looks like that his knee was down. Mon strike to Davis. Touchdown. And they do. Mon Rogers fighting for the ball. Pass interference. Mon looking that way. It's Rodgers! The Aggies win the game! Jimbo Fisher has his statement victory as the head coach of the Aggies. One man alive. It doesn't get any better than this. And the last play of the game. Fromm's in trouble. Can he even get a pass away? Rhodes goes to the end zone. Jump ball. Incomplete. 2018 SEC champions come from Tuscaloosa. Howdy and hotty toddy to all y'all SEC sophisticados. Welcome to another serving of an SEC-flavored bowl full of chips. I am your co-his-host from the Great Lakes Coast, Old Chappie, and you all know my 1A co-host, the always versatile Bip Clip. Bip, what's the dip? <laughs> Not much, Chappie. Just looking forward to getting into the start of our reviews. We start off with the SEC today which is going to be an eventful one as uh, we'll also dig into where we rank the SEC um, in relation to all of the conferences in the country. So ready and roaring to, ready and roaring to go. Yep, me too, brother. Um, well, if you've got a case of the football munchies, then grab yourself a bowl full of chips. Here at BFC, we bring football closer. We want to thank you for listening. Bip and I love the ego boost a little bit, and we love to see the work put in that is accruing some ears and some interest. And so like the Wonder Bra, we rely on you to help us look good. Yeah, and if you've ever seen the two of us, we could use all the help that we can get to look good. I mean, I'm sure plenty of our listeners have heard the term a face for radio. Um, so, <laughs> Yeah, and we're still trying to get a face for radio. So, <laughs> Yeah, right. In the meantime, we're just, we're just coming to you via podcast. <laughs> so the best way to make this podcast even better is to subscribe, share with your friends and family. Heck, even the guy that's sitting next to you at the bar shooting the shiz with you about sports who feel or who you feel needs to be more in the know. Anyone you know that enjoys college football, let them know. Let them know about us. All you've got to do is hit the share button on your device, and you can send it via text. You can email it, or you can even just mention us by word of mouth or by social media on the Twitter and the interweb that the kids are all talking about. Consider this your random act of kindness for the week. So we love college football here on Bowl Full of Chips. We love to laugh, and we love hindsight, Bip. So... The beautiful thing about hindsight is you can look back at things, both good and bad, and you can make yourself sound so much smarter than you may have been when the events were actually taking place. 
Yeah, I mean, the one of the things that I wish that I had hindsight of, I uh, heard a story recently of, guy put, um, I think, two... 2500 bucks on um, odds that the Rams would only kick a field goal in the Super Bowl walks away with a cool uh, 100 grand. So hindsight Oof. is actually pretty cool in certain instances. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. For him, hindsight was not 2020. It was 100 grand. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's quite a few things that hindsight would have certainly helped me out in that uh, maybe we can't go into on this, but um <laughs> You know, uh, I got to say that uh, this past season, hindsight wasn't really needed. I, I think that uh, a lot of things that I expected to happen happened, and um, it paid off pretty handsomely for me in our in our bowl pool, Bip. Uh, I don't know if you heard, but I, I kind of won that one. Yeah, you don't need hindsight when you're uh, going at a pace of about 85%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was working for me. But uh, watch it be 8.5 uh, if I get my head too big here. So yeah, right. I want to try and keep humble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, still waiting for you to – I'm still waiting to see that uh, you're like Biff in uh, um, Back to the Future 2 and you have that almanac uh, toting around somewhere. Well, come on over. Maybe I'll show you what I got. <laughs> so uh, in addition to your listening pleasure, our – Dosset voices going through your ear canals. You can also follow us on Twitter. I am at champion underscore lit. And I am at BFC BIP. So we will give you more than just what we do here. We also love to retweet and send off great ideas and borrow some some humor and some anecdotes and some interesting insight and predictions from our great followers and our listeners. Um, and wherever we get great college football resources, we are not hogs. We share them out. We share the wealth. And so we advise, we advise you to come check us out in that, in that regard. So here on today's Bowl Full of Chips episode, we're going to be looking at the SEC in review. We're going to look at both the East and the West. We're going to talk about our top players, some of the best games from 2018, give you our thoughts and some hints at maybe what to expect in 2019. <clears throat> Excuse me, Biff, it's getting to be cold season. And uh, by the way, um, did you get the five or six inches of snow that we got bombarded with tonight? Yes, I did. And I uh, wasn't expecting this one because I didn't hear from any of the teachers in my life. Uh, <laughs> you included that hey, right. we might be getting snow. <laughs> yeah, well, the problem is Mother Nature dumped it on us too soon. So driving home tonight, there were plenty of salt trucks and, and pavers that were out there ruining uh, tomorrow morning for most students and teachers. So. so now so now all of you have to deal with the pain in the ass that everyone else has to in the work week? <laughs> yeah, I got to get up and go to work. But uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe I'll still get one day off this week. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So what we pride ourselves in here at Bowlful of Chips is being college football podcasts that gives you more than the mainstream podcasts do. We'll throw more details at you and back our claims with research and perspective as well. We don't have a political agenda. We're not driven by pen pushers or corporate dollars. We like to think that we're objectively subjective. We'll try and keep the pounds of praise balanced with the punishing punches uh, for all teams. And we're both complimentary and critical whenever it is necessary. So, Bip, let's get right into it. 
in your opinion, and you and I know agree on this, where do we rank the SEC in terms of all 11 conferences? And we are going to include the independents in there, even though we're not going to break down the actual independent uh, conference. Bip and I are going to break apart those teams and lump them in with the most appropriate conference. But in the 11 or 10 conferences, if you will, Bip, where does the SEC rank? Well, although I'm not a ride-or-die SEC slappy, I, I have to say that it's an easy decision for me that, that they're number one overall, and I don't think it's even close. No. Um, look, Looking at this year, they were 4-1 and one against the Big Ten, um, and their only loss was a close uh, bowl game where Mississippi State was knocked off by Iowa. 6-4 uh, and four against the ACC. They're actually the only 3-4 and four against the Big 12, but I think if you match those two conferences up um that it wouldn't be close as far as the sec compared to the big 12 and they were one and oh against the pac 12 um the sec actually had eight teams within the top 30 uh teams in the country in regards to scoring margin the next conference was the big 10 and they only had three within there additionally the sec had eight teams within the top 30 of espn's efficiency rankings with the pac 12 being second with only five teams in the top 30 so I think there's a wide margin. I think that the elite teams in the SEC are can be matched by the Big Ten uh, and by Clemson of the ACC. Yeah. But I think if you look at the bottom feeders of the SEC, that it's not even close when you compare teams like uh, even putting Arkansas in there this year, uh, but also Ole Miss and um, Vanderbilt. I would put them up easily against the teams like Maryland, Rutgers, Indiana. Um, yeah, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and just, just to name off a few from the Big Ten, it would also coincide with the ACC, the Big 12, the Pac-12. What about right. you, Chappie? It sounds like you and I are on the same boat here. Yeah, well, you, you kind of touched on a lot of the key stats, and, and that's why we love you here, Bip. You are the stat guy. Um, eight of the 14 teams in the SEC finished ranked in the final top 25 of the college football playoff rankings, and I understand that rankings are subjective, but again, Um, You look at the bottom two teams in those divisions, Vanderbilt and Tennessee from the SEC East, Ole Miss and Arkansas from the SEC West. You match them up against the bottom two from the Big Ten East and Big Ten West. I don't really think it's close. You match them up with the bottom in the Pac-12 North and South. It's not close. You match them with the bottom two teams in the Big 12 because they're not split into divisions currently. I think that the SEC uh, wins handily. And I don't always buy into the idea that, okay, well, um, you know, it's it's how this team did in a bowl game because bowl games sometimes can be anomalies, especially now with the trend of so many players not playing in those bowl games and leaving for the NFL. Um, I think it, it really comes down to the whole body of work. And I think by and large, uh, again, I also am not a an SEC slappy. There's plenty of those in the world, and I don't need, I don't know that they're hinging on the two of us jumping right. on that bandwagon. Yeah. Um, but I mean you look from top to bottom, it's just very competitive, very talented football. And, you know, there, there can be good arguments made for other conferences and there could be arguments made that the sec has maybe some unfair disadvantages. Um, And those are some things that maybe college football and the NCAA should kick around. You and I brought up the idea of maybe expanding the college football playoffs to a six team format. And I truly believe that there should be, home games maybe in the first round or two so that way if there is an sec team that gets in how would they fare if they had to go play in a northeastern or a midwestern 
climate where it's going to be colder and some of those guys, um, you know, have to find out how tough they are mentally and physically where um, it, it's maybe a bigger advantage for the SEC to play at a neutral site or to play down in warm weather climate where they're used to playing and where naturally you're going to be a little bit faster. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's something that they inherently have that Big Ten teams have to kind of just deal with because uh, everybody wants to uh, allegedly see a, a climate where it, it suits better football. So, Oh, I completely agree. I mean, football's always been an outdoor game, so why not play it in the elements when you're talking yep. about if this team is truly the best in the country, then they should be able to play outside. And you see it all the time at the beginning of the season where you see teams from the Midwest, the Northeast, they travel down to places like Florida, Texas, um, and you you know, especially within August and early September, you got teams that are not used to that humidity and that heat and they cramp up all the time. Well, let's, let's bring it back and let's have these guys from the South go and play in wind chills that are uh, below freezing below zero. Let's see them play in the snow. Let's see them play in uh, you know, a, a sideways rain that is a mixture of sleet and ice and, you know, see, you know, you obviously don't want the game to be decided by the elements, but no. how often is a game decided by the elements? I mean, right. you could even take it to the pro game and it was dumping snow and Adam Vinatieri uh, kicked that that game winner against the Raiders in that famous playoff game in the AFC. So it's not as if it's a do all end all in the elements, but I think it's high time for sure that we stop making these these northern teams travel all across the country um, and, and make it more of a level playing field for sure. Well, and not only that, but you think about the fan bases. I mean, uh, a team that has to travel a thousand or so miles to go and see their their program who has earned their success this season, whereas Southern teams, um, you could literally drive there in maybe three or four hours um, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's a lot easier. So, And yeah. if we've learned anything from Cool Runnings, it's that you can take sprinters and and great athletes and they can still succeed in sub-zero temperatures so it's not a a (laughs) foregone conclusion that a a team from the north and the frozen tundra up in wisconsin or in uh, pennsylvania is going to automatically do that and honestly bet if i saw a team like clemson or alabama or georgia go up and win um in an opposing cold weather climate that would make me have even more respect for them and i give them a lot of respect for the great things that they've done this past season but to see them go and win on the road because let's face it most sec teams do not travel north of the mason dixon line and i think that's a bit of an unfair disadvantage and that's where i kind of always have that asterisk when i hear uh fans talk about the sec and how great it is and how dominant they are and it's like well hold on a sec let's try and make things a little bit more even here and that's where Sometimes I wish that there was a, an organization sponsored by the NCAA that stepped in and helped to schedule some of these games. And it wasn't just left up to athletic directors for each of these programs who are focusing on what's going to be most beneficial for their, their bottom dollar. Right. Yeah. And hopefully as, as the playoff continues to proceed, that that'll be something that's, that's harped upon that uh, not every SEC school does this, but you do see it, um, you know, for, from a lot of them just about every year where you have teams like the Citadel and you have all these other, you know, also rands the, the teams that are from the FCS and, and below that are playing in week, you know, 
10, 11, 12 against these SEC powers, which yeah. is not a buy, uh, you know, because we don't want to underestimate those teams. But yeah. it essentially is a pseudo buy for these SEC teams. So oh, not, not taking it, not taking anything away from the SEC teams. They are truly great football teams. A lot right. of them are. They have lots of talent, but, you know, more of a level play playing field, I think playing field i think needs to be done uh and needs to be seen across the country um and and especially for the sec for uh, a couple of things that we mentioned of travel to colder climates and these uh these cupcakes that they have sprinkled in uh, amongst their sec schedule yeah and that's the thing you know playing those fcs schools i think that that really needs to be eliminated across the board, no matter what conference you're in, no matter what team you are, or if you're going to play them, you have to play them in the opening week, you know? So either if you're playing an FCS school, um, you have to play them week one or you don't play them at all. Um, right. To, to play them in November and allowing your team to recuperate. And you'll hear these SEC coaches say, well, we're still playing our starters. We'll st- we're still lining it up as if we're playing against, um, any other power five school. No, you're not because no. <laughs> the game is over after the first quarter. So really, yeah, it's a glorified scrimmage against the freshman team and you're not expecting anybody to get hurt. And if there's even a shred of doubt that one of your stars is, is going to be injured, a smart coach will take them out and, and, and window dress it however they need to. Yeah, exactly. So, well, uh, Bip, w- let's give people our, surprises and our disappointments uh, first, and then we're going to run down the records for both the East and the West division. So successful surprises this year, Bip, uh, let me give you mine from the East first, and you might agree on this one. The Kentucky Wildcats, I think were one of the best stories in college football this year. And in fact, on a previous podcast, for those of you who listen, um, they were my number one successful surprise in all of college football this year. So they beat Florida for the first time in 40 plus years. <clears throat> the Wildcats finished 10 and three overall, which included a, a very strong victory over Penn State in their bowl game. They only finished five and three in the conference, but compared to where Kentucky has been, those were glorious numbers. And like I said, they beat Florida for the first time. And that's really the game because those two teams play usually in September or early October. So for Kentucky to get that, get over the hump there for the the first time in so long, um, that was pretty big. They were ranked for nine straight weeks to end the season. Their 10 wins were the most since they've had since 1977. Um, even though they're still on, the only SEC East team who has not reached the SEC championship game, which started back in 1992. Um, so that's still a, a mountain that, or that's still a, a, a checklist that Mark Stoop needs to cross off. But the Kentucky Wildcats, they finished 12th in the, in the country, 10-3 and three overall. They were my successful surprise from the East Bip. I'm going to go with uh, the Florida Gators, a team that you mentioned with uh, Kentucky there, has Kentucky having beaten the, the Gators. But uh, Florida was 4-7 and seven last year, with one of their games being canceled due to weather. Mm-hmm. This year they have a plus-12 uh, turnover margin, which was really one of the, the big reasons as to how they were so successful. In Dan Mullen's first year, I expected a, a good turnaround. I didn't necessarily see them being this good. Now, at, similar to Kentucky, they were only five and three in the conference. But uh, one of the losses being to Kentucky, as you mentioned, uh, after that game, they then snap off five straight wins, including wins at Mississippi State and home against LSU. 
they lose back-to-back games, but it's against a, a tough Georgia team and a Missouri team that really was, uh, despite their, you know, their they had a good, not great overall record, but a, a team that was one of the more one of the tougher teams in the country. Yeah. They then go and they just dismantled Michigan in their bowl game and doing all this right, with, they did didn't they <laughs> <laughs> doing all this with with a quarterback in Felipe Franks who I was really questioning how good he could be at the beginning of the year yeah. he was inconsistent this year but showed more good than bad overall I really like the direction that Dan Mullen has the Gators and uh, look for some potential good things to continue throughout 2019 as well yeah my big question is is Felipe Franks going to sustain or continue to trend upwards like he did this year? My big question mark with him is his head. Um, he yeah. has shown to be a little bit of a head case for the Gators. And Mullen has struck me as a guy who's a no-nonsense guy who's not really going to put up or tolerate with somebody who could be cancerous to that huddle. And um I was I was a little surprised to see that Franks had been booed by his home fans, uh, the home crowd there at uh, Steve Spurrier Field at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, um, sponsored by the Tim Tebow F- Foundation. Uh, <laughs> uh, but <clears throat> you know, is is he is he going to mature even more this year? Or uh, I know that they've got some pretty good talent in that quarterback room. If mm-hmm. if things are a little bit rocky to start, does Dan Mullen go to somebody like Kyle Trask, who is said to have uh, the better Mullen-type resume and the better arm than Franks does? So it'll be interesting to see uh, if Franks is somebody who continues to pan and do well, or is he going to fall in line of Malik Rozier from Miami and and fall backwards this year and, and su- subsequently maybe cause his team to suffer? Yeah, he was really kind of an anomaly this year, Franks was, as he had six games of 175 or fewer passing yards, but he had a 24 to 6 touchdown to interception ratio. So having that few of interceptions tells you one of two things. He could be really protective with the football or he could have been really lucky this year. So I think the key for the Gators going into 2019 will be what Felipe Franks does with the ball. Does he keep it at around six to eight interceptions or does he uh, regress back to the, what his mean could potentially be of maybe about 10 to 12 or 13. Yeah. What about the West? Who, who was a successful pri- surprise that uh, was pleasant in the West? Uh, in the West, I'm going to go with the Texas A&M Aggies. Now okay. they didn't have a, a very successful year in 2017, which led to uh, Kevin Sublin's demise this mm-hmm. year. With uh, Jimbo Fisher coming in, they improved to nine and four. A couple of their losses, they lost by only two to Clemson. They yep. also lo- only lost by four to Auburn. And that was a game that AM controlled throughout and were up by 10 as late as six minutes left to go, but then got outscored by Auburn within those six minutes, 14 nothing to uh, have the Tigers steal one. Right. Um, and, and they had one of the, the better games, which we're going to get into just a little bit where they won against LSU in seven overtimes and followed that up with one of the better bowl performances in college football, beating NC state 52 to 13. I was really impressed with how Jimbo Fisher took Kellen Mond and how he improved from his freshman year to his sophomore year. So the Aggies get my nod and the fact that they were able to improve so much seemingly under year one of Jimbo Fisher. Right. So, 
that's uh that they took my uh my vote in the west but how about you chappy who'd you have coming out that uh surprised you pleasantly this year i liked lsu and i think a&m is a good pick being that they finished ahead of lsu winning that head-to-head matchup but i mean if you take that game away and and obviously it was such a toss-up in seven overtimes right lsu wins that last game they finish uh, 10 and two in the regular season. And then I still think that they beat UCF in the bowl game. And so they finished 11 and two. There were a lot of media, you know, reputable media sources that were picking this team to finish fourth or even lower in the sec West. And they defeated a, a total of four top 10 teams, uh, five total ranked teams and all. And their only losses came to ranked teams, Florida and Texas A&M both on the road. Um, and then obviously at home to number one, Alabama. So, uh, it wasn't that they, um, you know, crapped themselves in in any games this year. They, I mean, the the Florida game they they certainly could have played better in, but that, as you just highlighted, was a pretty good Florida team. And so, uh, for LSU to to go ten and three this year and do it with after losing two of their top quarterbacks on their roster, uh, not counting Joe Burrow, I think Joe Burrow surprised a lot of people this year and is giving a lot of folks in Baton Rouge even more confidence for next year. And I saw that they uh, brought in an assistant coach and his name is escaping me, but um, supposed to be boosting the passing game and helping Steve Emzinger to get that uh, passing attack going even more for, for Burrow. So I think that there could be even better things coming in 2019, just to hint yeah. a little bit at that. Yeah, and I was really happy to see how good LSU did, did this year because uh, Coach O is one of the guys that I, I've always uh, rooted for, dating back to his days at Ole Miss. He's Even just if you one can't of those understand guys. Him. Yeah, old, old gravel voice. He, uh, <laughs> someone that you know, he he just you can see the the passion just bleeding out of him. Right. Whether it's in his uh, press conferences, whether it's on the sidelines, if you see any of the clips from practice, he's one of those guys that gets down in the trenches and he'll do an Oklahoma drill without wearing any pads and challenge his players. Right. Uh, and just, you know, exudes what sec football seems like, like it's all about. Yeah. And you can't get much more Bayou Cajun than, uh, yeah. so <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he always, he, he always seems like the, uh, the guy from the water boy that, uh, is inaudible anytime he speaks. Yep. Farmer friend. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of like Mr. Miyagi in the, in the first karate kid. Sometimes you don't know exactly what he's saying, but you're like, I, I like this guy. I know he's up to something good. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let's get to the disheartening disappointments in the East who maybe dropped the ball, so to speak for, for one of those East teams in the sec this year. I'm going to go with Tennessee and they finished last in the East uh, going two and six in the conference, five and seven overall. Now I didn't have huge high hopes for Tennessee this year, but I thought maybe Jeremy Pruitt coming in, not as though that they had as much talent in Georgia, but someone that was defensive minded around the ball comes from an Alabama pedigree. I thought that maybe he could lift that team to more than two wins within the conference. Yeah, They had quality wins against Auburn and Kentucky, but their only other wins this year were against East Tennessee State, UTEP, and Charlotte. They had six losses by 20 points or more, and their only close loss was to South Carolina by three points. Their next closest loss this year was 25 points to Vandy. So a lot of bad losses on this team, not many good wins to speak of. Uh, so the those two factors taken into account, I really thought that Pruitt would have maybe done a little more 
in his first year in uh, Tennessee. I agree, especially with the talent that they have in Knoxville. I mean, and that was the big knock with Butch Jones is that it wasn't that they didn't have the players there. It's just how is this not being put together? And I think that losing that finale at uh, Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt was a pretty good team this year, but Mm -hmm. uh, still, you're Tennessee. You're expected to win that game. Um, You know, I think that a a big win for the Vols was their their knockoff against Kentucky at home. Um, But you're right. When when your other uh, when your other wins come against UTEP, who is probably one of the ugliest teams in in FCS this year, and then Charlotte, I just there's something disheartening losing to a team named Charlotte. It's a girl's name, and uh, <laughs> you know, so you're not supposed to lose, or you're not supposed to. Uh, I, I I misspoke. They beat Charlotte, but still, that's not really yes. a, a resume. Yes. You know, that's <laughs> that's like exactly. coming home and bragging to your dad that you uh, in in. 10th grade you beat a bunch of uh first grade kids playing basketball at the park so <laughs> yeah um but how about uh, you chappy who do you have coming out of the east out of the east i have uh south carolina as my disappointment now mm-hmm. some people pick them to challenge and some even pick them to maybe even win the sec east i didn't agree with that at all uh going into the season i thought that maybe they would challenge and that there was a lot of build up into that georgia game early on in september but Georgia proved who the better team was, and they really silenced a lot of those Gamecock faithful because um, it it wasn't much of a game at all after uh, that first quarter. South Carolina lost six games, and they only beat two FBS teams that had winning records. Um, They had a problem running the ball. They couldn't play defense, which was a little bit surprising under a Will Muschamp team. So for a school and a program, a football team that some were saying was a legit 10 win team. They only went seven and six this year. They were completely flat in their bowl game. So they finished the regular season seven and five, but lost that bowl game to a a pretty solid Virginia team, or at least an upstart Virginia team. It just wasn't a very good showing for, for the Gamecocks this year. Yeah. And their, their seven wins, the combined record of those opponents was only 39 and 46 and it included Akron, Coastal Carolina and Chattanooga. So with it, considering that they have Jake Bentley on their team, I expected a little more, but a couple disheartening uh, trends that I've noticed in, in over Bentley's career, his completion percentage has decreased every year since his freshman year, while his interceptions have increased every year. So He's coming back for his senior year. We'll see what happens uh, with the Gamecocks and, and with Bentley at the helm. I mean, obviously they can't do any better, but um, he seems to be one of those guys that have kind of had a, a little bit of a downward trajectory in his career and as evidenced as uh, from South Carolina's record last year. Yeah, and no disrespect to Jake Bentley, but when the headlines came out saying Jake Bentley decides to stay one more year, I'm like, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> he didn't strike me as somebody who was really going to be busting through uh, any NFL draft boards, at least in uh, the first, second or third round. So I think no. that it was it was a good decision for him to come back. And this very well could be a team that we're talking about BIP next November, where we say, hey, South Carolina's finally doing it. Will Muschamp has got this team where he said he was going to get them. Um, but they're they're getting hungry down there in uh, Columbia, so something's going to have to turn soon. Mm-hmm. What about the West? Uh, let me give you my my disappointment in the West, and sure. this might be a little bit surprising to some, but the Auburn Tigers, um, they started the season ranked number nine, and they beat sixth-ranked Washington, and 
my notes for that game after watching it, this was a very dominant defense. They were aggressive. They were nasty. Um, Jarrett Stidham played a pretty good game at quarterback. They had a lot of weapons on the outside at receiver, tall receivers. Their their run game was formidable. Their offensive line was a, a good SEC line. They had a good special team. So going after that first week, this Auburn team, I was starting to think maybe they could challenge Alabama in that West. And things kind of just fell apart. They only beat one ranked team after that. They lost five total games in the uh, course of the season. They saved themselves in the bowl game against Purdue. But I think that was a game where Purdue... Um, just got smacked in the mouth too early and just didn't have a way to recover from that. Um, Auburn seemed out of sorts offensively, at least compared to previous Gus Malzahn teams. And given what he can do on that side of the ball, and we touched on this in a previous podcast, when he took control of that offense in the bowl game, they got back to the potential that many felt that they had going into this season. So um, they were my most disheartening disappointment on that Western side. Yeah, and I almost had Auburn as well because, as you mentioned, uh, eight wins, but their five losses that they have, it, it's really a who's who of if you have to lose to teams. It was against LSU, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi State, and then one um, head-scratcher in Tennessee. But in right. looking at who they beat And that was at home, of... too. They lost at Jordan-Hare to, uh, to the Bulls. Right, yes, and... Looking at their wins, they, they beat Washington, which was a, a good one. But outside of that, the only other ranked team that they had was against Texas A&M, who was only 25 at the time. So right. um, some quality losses for them, but really not a whole lot of quality wins. And you touched upon it. That offense, I don't know what happened to them as they looked like they were one of the teams that you would think would be one of the, the better offenses in the SEC and maybe one of the better ones in the country with Steedham coming back under mm -hmm. Gus Malzahn. But something... Something wasn't clicking, and it definitely showed in their their uh, biggest opponents of the season. And uh, we had mentioned this before. You made a great call comparing Malzahn to Jason Garrett. This is probably going to be a season in 2019 where Auburn, you know, don't sleep on the Tigers. They, they've got a good <laughs> nucleus coming back, and they could be somebody that we talk about as, as a challenger for that West in 2019. But more yeah, to come so on that later. <laughs> it's going to be a, another bittersweet um, moment for for Auburn fans too. Of do we want to be a successful team this year, and we'll have another three four years of Gus Malzahn, or do we just <laughs> want him to get the hell out of here? Right, exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so in the West, I'm going to go with uh, the Mississippi State Bulldogs now. And I going into the went season, with them. Yeah, well, I almost went with Auburn, so a good thing that we touch upon each team here. Sure. They were everyone's darling going into the season. Um, they had a ton coming back on defense. They had uh, Moorhead coming over from Penn State. They get Nick Fitzgerald to return, and Nick Fitzgerald is really one of the guys that held them back this year. He had over 1,000 rushing yards, but passed for only 1,700 with uh, 16 touchdowns only, and he completed only just over 51% of his passes. So yeah. the the defense that they had was one of the best in the country. They were third in the country in yards per game allowed, first in the country in points per game allowed. They gave up only 12 points per game. So with such a dominating defense, their offense at a bare minimum, only had to average 12.1 points per game. And they couldn't do that for five games this year. Yeah. Um, so 
their losses coming at at Kentucky against Florida at LSU at Alabama and they lost against Iowa in their bowl game. So again, another who's who of who did they lose to? Right. But when you take it on the flip side, their their notable wins this year were against Auburn, Texas A&M, but uh, you know, couldn't get through against any of the big dogs in the SEC and was were just kind of floundering on offense for most of the year, for the year. Yeah, and and in the month of preseason leading up to the opening week of kickoff, everybody was talking about Mississippi State as they could be the dark horse to challenge for the national championship. And they, mm-hmm. you know, they could be a team that finally upseats Alabama. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Joe Moorhead hasn't coached in one game here yet. So I kind of liken Mississippi State to like Jessica Beale or the Dave Matthews band. Like, okay, they're good, but I'm not buying that they're the best thing going uh in their respective field there you know and, uh, and i remember you warning me about that as i was i was drinking some of the mississippi state kool-aid um yeah. and you were telling me to take a step back for a minute so good call on your part for sure <laughs> yep yeah it may go down sweet but it's got to come out the other end sometimes so. <laughs> <laughs> well those were the teams bip uh so go, running down the east uh this is how it finished up um or they had Georgia finished at the top. They were seven and one in the conference, eleven and three overall. Followed by Kentucky and Florida, numerically tied at five and three in the conference. But Kentucky got the tiebreaker because they won the head-to-head early in September. Both of those teams finished at ten and three. South Carolina was four and four, finished seven and six overall. Missouri next at four and four, but they finished eight and five overall. And that really Missouri to finish eight and five. That was kind of a a noisily quiet eight and five, you know, looking at that record, Missouri didn't really strike me as a team that maybe would be an eight and five at the end of the year. They played a lot of close competitive games, but um, you know, that was uh, to, to see that I was a little bit struck and I, and I almost went with them, you know, if it weren't for um, Kentucky, they may have been my successful surprise in the East, just because, I mean, coming in when Missouri comes from the big 12, knowing that they've got to go year in and year out against Georgia, Florida, uh, South Carolina when they're good, Tennessee when they're good. That's kind of a gauntlet. So for Missouri to do as well as they've done early on in the SEC, they've been to the SEC title game two times. So good things going in Columbia there. Right. And they were actually ranked ninth on ESPN's overall team efficiency rankings. They lost on the last play against Kentucky, lost with two seconds left to go against South Carolina and lost to Oklahoma State in their bowl game in one of the more entertaining bowl games of the year. Right. Yeah, they screwed me on that one. I had I had the Tigers. <laughs> right. Uh, Vanderbilt finished three and five, six and seven overall. But uh, you know they they had that last game against Tennessee at home where they had to win to make a bowl, and they did. And Coach Derek Mason did his little uh, giddy up dance, whatever you want to call that, at the end of the game. It was it was good to see him with a lot of passion. Um, yeah. We also they're, they're one... him... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. They're one of the teams that I root for most in in the SEC. They're they're kind of the little engine that could that are a fun team to watch that they they just can't quite get over the hump yet. Yeah, I agree. And you know, kudos to Coach James Franklin for kind of getting them going, and then Derek Mason coming over from Stanford and and keeping that momentum rolling. It would mm-hmm. be nice to see them vault up and have a Kentucky like year. Um, yes. So, and we'll get into this in our previews, but. Uh, I think that there's good things from the Commodores coming around the horizon. 
as do I. And uh, Tennessee, another team I think that you really need to watch out for coming next year. They struggled this year, as you as you mentioned, two and six in the conference, five and seven overall. But again, they're one game away from making a bowl game. If they beat Vanderbilt, they're in the bowl, and Vanderbilt staying home at five and seven. So, uh, but I think Pruitt's got things going in the right direction there. And, and as we mentioned in our previous podcast, uh, had a pretty good recruiting season, especially in the tail end in this most recent February signing day. Yeah, he won't he won't have trouble getting getting quality recruits to go to uh play for the Vols. Right. So in the West, there was of course Alabama who finished 8-0 in the conference, 14 and 1 overall. They were the conference champ beating Georgia, um having to come from behind and beat Georgia. Um Texas A&M finished second in the West, owning the tiebreaker over LSU. Both teams were 5 and 3. Uh A&M was 9 and 4 overall. The Tigers of LSU were 10 and 3 overall. Mississippi State finished fourth at four and four, eight and five overall. Auburn was three and five, eight and five overall. And really, you know, you look at the overall column, you're like, well, Auburn was okay, eight and five. That's not too bad. But then you look at that three and five SEC mark, and you're like, ugh, what happened there? Um, Ole Miss was one and seven and five and seven overall, but it was really uh, an act of futility anyway because they were ineligible for a bowl, and they will also be ineligible for a bowl next year, which that's kind of a little black mark for the SEC. They will have two teams who will not be eligible to play in postseason next year. I don't know. I don't think off the top of my head that there's any other conference that has more than one team that can't go to a bowl. So, would be uh, kind of cool to see an SEC championship game of Missouri and Ole Miss. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> How I didn't even think about that, Bip. That's, I think. I think the playoff committee's the heads would, gods. <laughs> yeah, their 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 heads would explode on the uh, playoff committee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then you've got Arkansas at zero and eight, two and ten overall. Um, you know, I think Chad Morris was a good hire for the Razorbacks, but yeah, but just, what the hell happened there? Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, they only two wins this year, and they were against Eastern Illinois and a three-win Tulsa team. They had a negative 157 scoring margin this year, which was almost 100 uh, points behind the second lowest scoring margin, which was Tennessee in the SEC. Yeah, and so their former coach, Brett Bielema, prides himself on playing great defense, uh, and Chad Morris, obviously, with a great offensive mind, but then you see that point disparity, and, and neither one was looking very good. Right. So those are our that's that's how the SEC fared this year in terms of records. Bip, who were some of the players? Let's start with you. Who was your most outstanding player? Now we want to distinguish that we went with the MOP, the most outstanding player, as opposed to the most valuable, because oftentimes you can be an outstanding college performer and not necessarily bring the most value to your team. So who was most outstanding on the offensive side of the ball, Bip? Well, I almost went with Travion Williams just to get away with uh, to get away from the obvious answer, but I I couldn't. Here's the softball pitch. Who do you got? <laughs> <laughs> couldn't pry myself myself away from uh, Tua Tungavaloa. Tua um, Tungavaloa. <laughs> uh, thirty over thirty nine hundred yards, forty three touchdowns, to only six interceptions. Yeah. Didn't have a pick until their ninth game of the year against one of the best secondaries in the country in LSU. Right, and he was often taken out of the game early, so he could have had even better stats. Um, and because of that, he finished second in the country in yards per, yards per attempt this year, 
also added five rushing touchdowns on the ground. Now, the biggest knock on him is that his two worst games of the season were in the SEC championship game and the national championship game. Um, so I'm really Brandon, interested he to was, see. He was hurt there, so we'll we'll put a, a slight asterisk next to that. Um, he yeah, wasn't playing yeah. at full speed, but. Yeah, true, true. Um, so I'll be interested to see how he rebounds this year as Bama closes out the season against the the tougher competition again, assuming they, they get to the SEC championship game and or the college football playoff. But he was a runaway winner in the SEC for me. What about you, Chappie? Yeah, I'm going to have to go with the low-hanging fruit of Tungavailoa as well. Uh, I mean, like you said, you look at the numbers, 69% completion percentage, Mm-hmm. 3,966 yards, that 43 to 6 touchdown to interception ratio. I mean, the guy for the first two and a half months of college football just literally could not miss. And I know that he was thrown to maybe the best receiving core in the SEC, but uh, you still got to get the ball there and see some of those throws that he made was just incredible. And what I really appreciate most about Tua is his humility and his humble character. I mean, when he was winning different awards um, in Orlando at the end of the year award show that ESPN hosted. And uh, then even in the Heisman trophy uh, run up, he, he was always deflecting attention away from himself and put it all to his team. And in today's egocentric world and everybody trying to get followers on social media and clicks and whatnot Tua just genuinely seems like he loves playing the game. He's proud of the fact that he's a, an Alabama Crimson Tide football player. And that uh, uniform that he puts on means a lot more than the name on the back. And so uh, it was easy to go with him as the most outstanding player. Um, but, you know, also it, it's cool to see such a, a talent with, uh, with a, a low ego and somebody who's a great person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, and this might be a, a, an obvious comparison, but um marcus mariota from from oregon you know the guys are just humble they go they go out there to work they collect the accolades but the accolades are not what they're they're out there striving for by the way and i'm sure that uh all the big wigs from espn are tuning into our podcast right now Um, oh yeah there would be a great 30 for 30 on hawaii football or just any documentary on hawaii football i mean when you look at mariota and Tua and his younger brother and Mackenzie Milton. I mean, obviously that is a hotbed of talent out there. And I, yeah. I'm, I'm really curious to see, you know, maybe follow some of the bigger programs like that St. Louis high school out there um, in, in Hawaii and just kind of uh, maybe following the players, the coaches, the fans, uh, all that goes in and out there. Give us a little bit of that Hawaiian culture. It's just a cool thing. Or if anybody wants to, uh, send Bip and I out for an all expenses paid uh, trip. We can do some research and we can report sure. it back on this podcast. So if you're listening, yeah, or, you got uh, you know open pocketbook, then uh, we're open for it. Yeah, or or at least have someone get to the bottom of it and see if Mackenzie Milton and Tua Tagovailoa ever played against each other in high school. Yeah, can um, somebody I, can somebody build that up? I mean. Yeah, we're, we're, talking, we're dying quit, here. <laughs> quit talking about Dwayne Haskins going to visit Ohio State when he was in the eighth grade. And let us know whether Milton and Tonga Vailoa ever played against each other in Hawaii. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm tired of hearing of what a great runner that Dwayne Haskins was. We obviously know that, but <laughs> <laughs> right. So so that takes care of the offensive side of the ball. Chappie, who did you have on your defensive side that uh you thought was your most outstanding player? 
Well, I'll be honest. I I knew who the SEC Defensive Player of the Year was, and I was trying to find, was there anybody else who had stats that were comparable? And I really couldn't find it. So Josh Allen from Kentucky, Mm -hmm. to me, was the runaway most outstanding player on defense. Um, 118 tackles, 21.5 tackles for loss, 17 sacks, five forced fumbles, four PBUs. And a big part of me was looking at Grant Delpit from – LSU. Um, but Allen's numbers, I think not only statistically was he outstanding, but um, you throw in that aspect of value. He was, Kentucky was outstanding on defense because of Josh Allen. If you take him away, I don't know how outstanding Kentucky's defense is going to be. That would be good. But um, I mean, Josh Allen was just somebody, and especially in that bowl game, Penn State literally could not block the guy. And and when you watch a talent like that, I think he's kind of a, a once-in-a-decade type player on defense that uh, you're just not going to see outside of an Alabama or an LSU. So Kentucky fans were really spoiled by his play this year and even last year as well. So unfortunately, he's taken his talents to the NFL. It would be nice to see him one more year. But he's definitely my MOP on defense this year. How about you, Bip? Yeah, um, I, I similar to you, I hunt – I hunted and I pecked and I tried to find someone other than Josh Allen. The only name that came to mind was Quinnen Williams, who didn't have the stats of Josh Allen, but you could see that he was quite often the best and most dominating defensive player on the field. Now, I didn't have the resources nor the time to take a deep dive into his film while we were trying to compile these lists. I'm sure if I did, I could maybe make a case as to him rivaling Josh Allen um, so he was one that was up there for me, but I had to go with Allen. Like you mentioned, a lot of the stats, second in the country in sacks, tied for second with five forced fumbles, sixth in the country with the uh, tackles for loss, and the fact that he added in um, so many tackles and four passes defended as well for being a guy who's known for rushing the passer, really impressive, just an all-around stat guy uh, on the defensive side of the ball. This was, a, this was another easy layup as far as uh, right. most outstanding player in the SEC. Yeah, and uh, you know, going back to the video on Quinn and Williams, there were some Clemson fans who were kind of criticizing broadcasters for overhyping Quinn and Williams and then the fact that Clemson won so handily against the, the, the Tide. Uh, Cole Kublik from the SEC network and ESPN took it upon himself to cut up and put out on Twitter a number of clips where Williams blew up uh, one-on-one blocking double teams got into Trevor Lawrence's face. And, and, you know, fortunately for the Tigers, Lawrence was able to get that quick release out. So it didn't really affect the play, but you could certainly see the tough task that, uh, that Clemson offensive linemen and running backs had and trying to slow down Williams. So yeah, definitely a force in that middle part as a, as a one technique at nose tackle. And man, what a testament to the depth that Alabama has. I mean, we all, we know all of the five-star guys and whatnot, and you most likely have to sit and wait your turn. But for him, this being his only year of starting being yeah. a redshirt sophomore, and he ends up being at this good and just seemingly hiding on the depth chart until this year. Just right. unbelievable depth and talent that they have in Tuscaloosa. Yep, exactly. Um, well, coach of the year, I think we kind of tipped our hand at this, but uh, who do you give as the whistleblower who 
Um, and I mean that in a positive way, of course, who uh, really led. <laughs> not in the business it. sense? No, no, not at all. <laughs> so uh, uh, I thought about going with Dan Mullen as, uh, as we mentioned already, he turned the Gators around from a four and seven to a 10 and three team mm-hmm. in his first year in Gainesville. But one of those losses was to uh, my pick in Mark Stoops. Yep. Uh, his, his Wildcats finished 10 and three, which is tied for second most wins in a single season in Wildcat history. Started five and zero, uh, then lost in in overtime at, uh, against Texas A and M in a in a tough loss, which their only major blemish of the season um, was uh, to a twenty four and seven or was a twenty four and seven loss to to lowly Tennessee. But outside of that, just a an outstanding job done by by Stoops. Mm-hmm. His offense wasn't much to speak of as they finished eighty fifth in points per game and one hundred fourth in yards per game. Uh, but defense where they really show, uh, shined is they were one of the nastiest in the country, finishing 20th in yards per game and 8th in points per game allowed. So uh, hard to choose against Stoops, especially with how um, poor Kentucky's been historically in the SEC. And he's one of those uh, guys, like I mentioned before with Coach O, easy to root for as you've seen him and the progress that he's had with Kentucky, kind of a slow burn, but man, he's got that train up and chugging. And I'm really curious to see if he can keep things going with uh, the Wildcats next year as we go get into 2019. Yeah. And Kentucky is a very tough area to bring talent to because you're surrounded by Tennessee and obviously UT, and then you've got Ohio on that Northwestern border. So, uh, most people, anybody who's anybody, a talent coming out of the state of Kentucky is probably going to go to one of those two football pro- uh, programs. And so I think Stoops definitely did more with the talent that he had uh, to work with. And, you know, people can it's nice to see that there is a, a good defense in the SEC that can win pr- playing primarily on, on defense. And some people say, well, what about Mississippi State? Well, Kentucky won more games than Mississippi State did. Mm-hmm. Um they, uh, you know, and, and I correct me if I'm wrong. They beat Mississippi State, didn't they, Bip? Um, or did Mississippi State beat Kentucky? Um, you know that one escapes me right now. Okay. Um, well, I'm sure I'm sure fans from from either side will yes uh, correct us. But um, Kentu- Kentucky did beat Mississippi State. Okay, good. That's what I thought. Um, and that was another one of those games. Hey, actually, yeah, that was in Commonwealth Stadium in uh, in Lexington. So yeah, that was a game that they they pretty much controlled and, and they just ground them out with the run game. So um, with a lackluster offense, I would put Mississippi state's offense well ahead of Kentucky's offense, even with Benny Snell. And so um, to do that uh, with, you know, your defense being nasty the way it was, I just think that speaks highly of what Mark Stoops did, especially from the standpoint that there were fans and there was even maybe um, some people within the program who were kind of thinking that he, his time had run his course and maybe he needed to get out of there. Uh, but he worked his magic and he politicked to get another year. And it certainly paid dividends for, for the bluegrass supporters. So good yeah, job. And, Coach and, Stoops. and I would have been up in arms if they did cut him loose before this year, because who else are you going to get to go into Kentucky? Right. I mean, the job that he's done recruiting and the job that he's done coaching over the past, uh, during his tenure, in uh as the wildcats head coach has been second to none in relation to recent um coaching hires uh in kentucky so yeah so that was my 
I'm not sure if you you alluded to this or not officially. Was Stoops yours as well? Or did you have another? Coach oh yeah, no, no, no. Champion? I'm sorry. Yeah, that okay. was, Stoops was my my winner. Okay, yep, that's sure. what I figured. Just wanted to <laughs> double check on that one. Yep. If not, then I was I was uh, showing some mad uh, man crush love for Coach Stoops, even though he didn't win it. So <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, well, let's get to some of the top games, Bip, and we'll kind of just popcorn back and forth. And I'm willing to bet that you and I have some of the same games. So mm-hmm. start with you. Give me uh, one of your top games from this year. It can either be um, your your top or you can go in the, any random order you want to. So give me one great game that stood out to you in the SEC this year. Kind of mentioned this one already, LSU at Texas A&M. Uh, yeah. The craziness that a uh, seven-overtime game can be. A&M ended up winning 74-72. Kellen Mond ended up with six touchdowns. Uh, Travion Williams rushed for 198 and added in two scores. Joe Burrow had 29 carries for the game, finished with 100 yards and three touchdowns on the ground, as well as 270 in the air and three touchdowns uh, to coincide with that. Total of 84 points scored in overtime. I wasn't able to see the majority of this game, but I was lucky enough to tune in as overtime started. And man, that's one of the more exciting things. Say what you want about college football's overtime, whether it needs to be tweaked or or anything like that. I love it. And this was a prime example of it, especially as you get into the point to where each team has to go for two. It was a nail biter all the way to the end. Yeah. uh, And that could be a discussion we have. I I have some reservations about overtime games that go that deep um yeah but i do know that uh i remember i was driving back from evanston illinois from the northwestern illinois game and uh you and uh our brother josh had been texting back and forth saying hey are you guys watching this lsu a&m game and i was actually <laughs> listening to it on sirius radio and I was I was wanting to finally turn it off and tune into another game. And I'm like, God, another one, another one, another <laughs> one. So I think I actually drove through um, about half the state before that game was done. So and that was after <laughs> tuning in after regulation. So, right. Um, yeah, that one was and that was weird because LSU thought that they won. Kellen Mond uh, threw a desperation uh, or not a desperation pass, but he threw a pass that was intercepted and LSU thought that they had iced the game. But after review, they determined that Mon's knee was down. So they got another play completed a fourth down, I think a fourth and 13 pass and uh, extended the game. So coach O was bathed in a sticky Gatorade premature uh, celebration (laughs) bath, um, then had to endure seven overtimes with that cold stickiness on him. Um, Yeah. And that's gotta be one of the worst feelings of not only does your team not win, but just that, if anyone's had any sort of juice or anything spill on them and uh-huh. that stickiness that you have to walk around in for seven overtimes while you try to communicate on your headset. Well, it's a good thing too, that it was uh, Thanksgiving weekend and not like um, hot September in Texas. Cause then you've got bees that are going to be swarming. Around yeah. you, so. <laughs> Actually that would have been fun to see. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, and two, there were some great catches in the fourth quarter and overtime by a&M receivers Courtney Davis and Kendrick Rogers, especially that one at the end. Rogers made a one-handed grab with a defender draped all over him. Mm-hmm. Um, just a lot of great athletic plays in that football game. So, yeah, I had that as one of my top games as well, Bip. Um, I'm going to give another one to you, and that is number 12 LSU at number 7 Auburn back in, I believe it was early October. And this is when Auburn had um, – you know, they were riding high from some early season success. 
and they went up 21-10 early in the third quarter. And then LSU came back to score 12 unanswered points, which culminated in a Cole Tracy 42-yard field goal as time expired. And they got there um, after a fourth and seven conversion to uh, Stephon Sullivan and then got two crucial defensive pass interference calls on the LSU or on uh, Auburn that uh, kept the drive going, including a crucial one against Jamel Dean that helped set up that game-winning field goal. So that was um, kind of a... Uh, a rough, tough SEC physical game in the early part of the game. It looked like Auburn was running away with it at the end, uh, playing at home, but then LSU fought back, and it was just an entertaining game from uh, that start of the second half on to the, the final kick. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I remember watching that one, and it's always a uh, a good matchup between uh, the two um Tigers teams and yeah, I found and out they was... call that the Tiger Bowl unofficially, which makes sense. Um, yeah, but okay. uh, and those two teams they always seem to play tough against one another, and really they they almost mirror each other. Usually, there are good defenses, there are offenses that are um, at least before struggle. Malzahn, yeah, they they either struggle or they they do just well enough to to win games. So, um, yeah, traditionally, right. those two teams uh match up pretty well. Yeah, offenses that have a lot of talent that oftentimes underachieve their their talent level. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, another game I'm going to go with is uh, Kentucky at Missouri. Now this yep. one ended up with a Kentucky win, fifteen to fourteen, in the last play of the game. And actually, how we got there was um, Missouri committed a pass interference penalty on what would have been the last play of the game in the end zone. So an untimed down is had for Kentucky, and Terry Wilson connected on. Um, a two or three yard pass with CJ Conrad for the game winner. Kentucky actually scored the last 12 points of this game, including a punt return touchdown by Lynn Bowden and their final drive went, uh, spanned eight plays and went over 81 yards. Um, as Kentucky drove the final dagger into the, the tigers and, uh, walked off victorious in this one. Yeah, I, I remember just tuning in for that final drive and after the string of events, after the uh, interference call and then uh, that touchdown pass to Cole Conrad on the left side in the end zone was uh, I was like, wow, you know, I mean, this is this really is Kentucky magic. And that's, I think, what made the yeah. Kentucky season so cool is you saw games like that. Um, sometimes when a team surprises and they just dominate, kind of like when Oklahoma in 2000 uh they right. kind of came out of nowhere but they just throttled all their opponents to me as a college football fan it's a little bit more entertaining to see a team like kentucky pull out some of these nail biters and and really give that mystique and that uh that magic feeling to to what they're doing and as a fan of that team too i always prefer that i mean it, it, it's always nice to have the comforting uh feeling of your team being up uh, after the second quarter and never looking back. It's, it's always a comforting thing to have, but I, I think I enjoy the seasons more where my team has four or five nail biters that go down to the last two minutes of the game to where I have highs and lows in that game that make my heart rate, my heart race. And I'm almost to the point of, you know, actually sweating in the game because I'm so into it to where, you know, uh, whereas on the, on the other hand of, you know, like the team, like you mentioned, Oklahoma, where I'm just on Twitter, checking the game at, mm -hmm. in the third and fourth quarter. Cause I'm like, well, another snooze fest, but another right. win. Good one. Good victory boys. Sure. <laughs> right. <clears throat> um, 
Yeah, the and then I think another obvious top game is the SEC championship when number four Georgia played number one Alabama. And mm-hmm. I was I was a little surprised at the commanding uh, presence that Georgia had early on. They were up 28-14 early in the third quarter. Uh, Tua is out with injuries, so you kind of think that, well, a 14-point lead and forcing a the, the SEC's top passer out of the game that the Bulldog defense and Kirby Smart, who runs his team around defense, is going to keep this in control but Jalen Hurts comes back to retake control of the Alabama team and help them score 21 unanswered points um, and he, he even accounted for two of those final touchdowns including the game-winning touchdown run and I'll say that he got a little bit too much love from Gary Danielson on on CBS but you know <laughs> it's, it's nice to see some passion and um, his games st- or the game stats were actually very very close and Georgia had better stats overall than Bama did. But um, after scoring a touchdown to go up by 14, they missed a chip shot field goal, which was a rarity from Rodrigo Blankenship. And then they punted mm-hmm. three times, called a bad fake punt. Yeah, that um, was awful. <laughs> and, and again, you know, for not to criticize Josh Fields, but um, if he was this wunderkind that everybody uh, spoke of, he probably should have made more of an impact on that fake punt. He looked lost out there as if they, and and I'm not blaming it on him. It almost looks as if they just drew it up uh, right before they went out there. And he was like, you want me to do what coach? And and then it kind of fizzled. Well, and here's the thing with that one. Bama kept their base defense on the field. Georgia had two timeouts. What the hell was the coaching staff doing? Not realizing that. And you kind of tip your hand when you have number one, coming onto the field, regardless of whether it's highly touted Justin Fields or not. When anyone that's right. number one comes onto the field mm-hmm. and lines as the up back uh, right in front of the punter, don't you think that you have a little bit of uh, – you're, you're tipping your hand just a little bit? <laughs> well, yeah, especially if he's your backup quarterback. I mean – Right, uh, exactly. I, even if I'm the special teams coach and I'm scouting the opposing special teams, even if the backup quarterback is, has been the personal protector of the up back – all season Mm -hmm. i'm still saying okay at this point in the field we're playing fake and yeah like you said they kept their base defense out so you would think uh that's a situation exactly where you you line up and you say all right they they're not fooled call timeout let's let's kick it our defense has been playing pretty good um and let's make alabama earn it but instead they gave them great field position yeah, because because even if you're on the sideline and you don't notice it, someone up in the box has to be screaming in their headset to, um, you know, to the head coach saying, hey, we got a timeout. Let's burn one because this fake punt's not going to work. Yeah, but somewhere Jim Harbaugh saying, hey, he made a mistake, guys. Let him off. Quit, quit harping on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, uh, Georgia actually had a pretty good offensive game from especially had over 300 yards passing, three touchdowns, but the Bulldogs only averaged 3.9 yards per carry on the ground. That's right. really kind of what did them in yeah. um, outside of the de- the defensive collapse. Sure. Any other games stood out to you, Bip, or, or did that pretty much cover the uh, the entertaining uh, conference that was the SEC? That covered all of what I had for, uh, for tonight's podcast anyways. Yeah, for sure. Um, any other thoughts to snack on? Any other tidbits that uh, you found that are maybe worth mentioning or, or thoughts to uh, throw out uh, maybe some rhetorical questions for, for the two of us to think about and our listeners to think about and, and maybe come back to another time? Anything that sticks on your mind? 
Sure. First, I want to mention uh, for a conference not traditionally thought of as being a, a scoring conference. Now, I know that they've jumped into the 21st century and they have some of the better offenses in the league now. But the right. SEC has had someone finish in the top three of the Heisman um, seven of the last nine years, including uh, winning three of those. And I, I think where it all starts now, r- regardless of where you fall on the the line of recruiting and and whether too much um media attention's drawn to it in a in a composite of recruiting team rankings in the last three years the sec holds nine of the top 25 spots including two of the top three four of the top 10 and you can really see it i mean they're in the a lot of the um recruiting hotbeds and they have a lot of the better facilities a lot of the more money coming from the boosters so that makes sense but if you can take that and extrapolate that, the SEC has also had the most draft picks for the last 12 consecutive years, and it shows in the conference the the play on the field, the talent that each team has. Um, and I don't think it's going anywhere soon, but it's nice to see that teams like uh, Clemson and Ohio State and uh, you know a couple teams in the Pac-12 might challenge here and there right. can have the ability to come up and and come through and, and break through the the juggernaut conference that is the SEC as it relates to bowl games and playoffs and such. Right. Yep. So th- those are my thoughts to snack on. Um, but uh, what about you? Any, anything for our listeners to munch on as we uh, make our way to the weekend? Well, uh, touching a little bit on what you said, I, I still go back to the idea that I, I really think that college football would be improved overall especially in the power five conferences if there was some more uniformity with scheduling and kind of forcing the sec out of their comfort zone and um, going to play teams out west going to play teams up in the north you know and it doesn't have to be at the end of the season it could be in that september window but i think that oftentimes anytime that a, a team from those regions plays the sec it's either in dallas or it's in atlanta or uh, mm-hmm. granted it's on a quote unquote neutral site, but you know, you're, you're going to play in someone else's backyard. So, um, you know, I, I, would kind of like to see that there was some closeness that I wanted to point out for a couple of teams, Texas A&M played six games this year that were decided by a touchdown or less, and they went four and two in those games. So what that tells me is that Jimbo did a great job at, at teaching his guys to finish and, and play into the end and, Really, that's what it comes down to is who is going to, when things are close and when you've really got to fight and scratch, who's going to be the ones that come out on top. So A&M had the the most games played that close and and also the best record in those games. And then Arkansas, even though they went 0-8, 2-10 overall, they lost four games by a touchdown or less this year. And so our good friend Phil Steele does a great point in his magazine talking about teams that have close games one year and how that usually translates to if you're on the low end in the previous season, usually you come out with a better record the next season. If you're on the winning end, so like Texas A&M won four games out of the six that were decided by a touchdown or less, that sometimes doesn't bode as well for those teams. So those are some things to look at going into next year. Um, Chad Morris, I think, has things moving in the right direction at Arkansas and Jimbo. Um, I don't see them digressing next year, but there's already some people on Twitter and and some listeners who have been reaching out to us saying that A&M might be a little bit overvalued and overrated uh, in the early top 25 so far. So we'll we'll 
we'll keep an eye on those two things. Yeah, and to to add to your uh, one of our our friend uh, Mr. Steele says uh, in relation to turnover margin as well. Adding into Arkansas, they had a negative ten turnover margin this year, which was good for tying for 119th in the country yeah that usually should regress to the mean and um, yep. those two factors taken into account not to mention uh second year under chad morris look out for arkansas to not necessarily take over the sec obviously but to definitely be better than a two-win team going into 2019 yeah i i mean if if you put a uh if you put my my back to the wall right now and said, Chaffee, do, do they make a bowl next year? I'm going to say right off the bat, yeah, I think Arkansas does make a bowl next year. I could see them easily as a six or seven win team. And that's without looking at their schedule and, and really right. diving deep into the odds and ends of, of Arkansas football. But uh, given what we saw this year and given some of those trends that we mentioned, I, I think good things are on the way for Arkansas fans. So hang in there, Razorbacks. Yep. So where can you find us? We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and Radio Public, among others. So obviously you found us on one of those, but if it's not as comfortable for you, if one of those other mediums is going to give you a better listening experience, especially when it comes to just subscribing and it automatically uploads to your phone or whatever device you choose, uh, go with that because I I think you're going to enjoy your weekly dose of bowl full of chips. So that's going to bring this cast to a close bit for all you summer catch fans. We are Ryan Dunn. We want to thank our sponsors, <laughs> the blacktux.com as well as the anchor podcast platform, which was recently bought out by Spotify. So um, again, we don't have any commercial ties with that, but Spotify, I can speak from experience is a great listening uh, venue to go to for, for any of your music or podcasts. Uh, But most importantly, we want to thank all of you for listening, especially those who are back again and not succumbing to the doldrums of college football offseason. We will always help you get your fix, and we strongly hope that you continue to subscribe, listen, but also please spread the word and help us be heard. And if you like what you hear and are propelled to do so, give us a rating with honesty and integrity and let us know exactly what we are doing well. And if there's anything that we could do better, Bip and I certainly want to do that. On our next episode, we're going to continue our conference review by looking at the ACC and looking at some of the ACC traditions of that 14-team conference uh, that make up a collection of competitors. Thank you, everybody, for listening to A Bowl Full of Chips. I am Chappie. I am Pip. And remember, biggest isn't always best, so thanks for choosing the right over the rest. Keep bowling, buddies and bells. Peace. Peace.